Welcome to Ascension Development, the podcast. Alright, welcome once again to Sentient Developments, the podcast. As always, I am your host, George Dvorsky. I am a blogger at sentientdevelopments.com, where I cover such topics as science, technology, futurism, and transhumanism. I'm also chairman of the board at the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, where we consider the ramifications of nascent technologies, including biotechnologies, and those that may impact on human performance and experience. For today's episode, we're going to be talking about extraterrestrial intelligence and the search for it, and in particular, some particularly dangerous things that we might be doing as we conduct that search. And in particular, what I'm referring to is what's known as Active SETI, also known as METI, which is Messages to Extraterrestrial Intelligences. So I'm going to get into that and and describe why that might actually be a very, very hazardous thing to do. In the second portion of the episode, we're going to discuss also how passive SETI, how simply the act of listening for radio signals or any kind of transmission or communications from extraterrestrial intelligence could also be dangerous as well, as maybe unintuitive as that might sound. In, uh, and in, I'll also conclude that particular section by going over why I think, um, what a kind of my overview of all these different risks and why I think that uh, maybe our assessment of alien threats is perhaps a bit wrong. And I will conclude the episode by going over a recent interview that was done uh, of um, Nick Bostrom, a very famous transhumanist and philosopher. And uh, in particular, the interview was about our underestimating the risks of human extinction. And I will conclude the podcast with a bit of an editorial, if you will, on the create the future myth and that we might not actually be able to create the kind of future that we think we can. But before we get into those particular segments, want to update you on um, the goings on in my life over the last uh, week. Nothing to report to you on the uh, the job front or on the school front. Those are just still, um, let's just say, progress all around. And I should have maybe some news for you in the next couple of weeks or so. But I do have some news for you on the CrossFit front. Again, we are in the midst of the CrossFit Open. The CrossFit Open is a tournament uh, that's being conducted around the world, and there's over 65,000 competitors involved in this right now around the world. And it is uh, basically it is an evaluation of one's fitness and strength. And uh, CrossFit claims to produce some of the world's fittest athletes. And in fact, the CrossFit Games is the measure and the rewarding of exactly that. They are on the search for the world's most fittest male and the world's most fittest female. And this is the first round of the, uh, the, the, I guess, the CrossFit Games uh, process. Uh, There's three different, uh, I guess, rounds to it. There's the first, which is called the CrossFit Open, which is open to absolutely everyone around the world, including myself. Then come the regionals, which um, I'm currently um, 
uh, participating in the Canada East Regional. Canada is divided in, in half. There's also the, the Canadian West Region as well. So the, I have no hope in hell of getting there. So that's fine and well. And those who actually manage to get through the regionals end up going to the CrossFit Games in California later this year. So uh, that's just a quick summary of the uh, what the CrossFit Open is. And every it's a five-week tournament, and every week they announce a different workout. And I just want to quickly update you on how last week's went, and uh, I'll let you know what uh, next week's will look like as well. So this was the uh, second week, and the uh, workout was a 10-minute AMRAP of snatches. A snatch being uh, a very uh, elegant lift where you grab the weight from the ground, and in one sw- one singular movement, you're going from ground to directly overhead. So there's no clean in between. And it was a 10-minute AMRAP, so as many rounds as possible, or in this case, as many reps as possible, uh, with steadily increasing weights, though. So the first 30 weights were at 75 pounds for men, and uh, then they went dramatically up there to 135 pounds, and then to 165 pounds, and then to 210 pounds. And uh, this was particularly problematic for me because... Uh, I was worried about being stuck after the first round of, of 75 pounds because my maximum lift for the snatch to date was 130 pounds. So I would have to actually PR this by 5 pounds in order for me to actually even proceed into the second round of this event. So that's where I left off last week, and uh, here's what ended up happening. So I practiced the snatch lift all week and because it's not, not so much an issue of strength. Uh, it's an issue of technique. And I tried to kind of work on that and get uh, my muscle memory uh, on that as well. So I pr- practiced with a very light bar. Then uh, I took the um, the Friday off completely, and then I went in on the gym on the Saturday and did the, did the actual competition. So I, w- I approached this very differently than I do normal workouts. And I, I approached this more from the perspective of trying to go for a one rep max So and not look at it as, as a working weight. So what I did was I told the judge, I said that, look, I'm not going to go immediately from the 75 pounds to the 135 pounds. I'm going to increment my way up there to get more uh, comfortable with the increasing weights because going from 75 to 135 is just too dramatic. So what I did was I quickly got my 30 lifts in at 75 pounds, and then I incremented up. I went from um, 75 to 95 did about three or four lifts. Remember, the clock is ticking here, so I am running out of time. I couldn't, I can't waste too much time here, but at the same time, uh, I have to go about this methodically. So then I went from 75 to 95, then from 95 to 115, then from 115 to 125. So you can see I'm really making minor increments as I make my way up, and I went from 125 to 130. So I managed to do one lift of, of that, so I was very happy that I was able to actually match my PR at this point. That's a good confidence builder. So now all I had to do was add five pounds, and so now I'm actually at 135, and I indicated to the judge at this point that I was ready to go, and that uh, these lifts now were were to should I get them were, were to count now as far as the competition goes. So uh, went uh, I had about two and a half minutes now left in the workout to see if I could even get one uh, lift in at 135 pounds. So I bent down, extended my arms, put my feet together, and I focused on that initial shrug movement and getting the arms extend, extended um, upwards. And much to my surprise and delight, I got it overhead and uh, was a successful rep. And I, I wish I could have seen the surprise on my face because I was very surprised. And uh, so then I dropped it. And after a quick little, you know, fist pump, I realized, wow, I've still got a whole two minutes to go here. It felt pretty comfortable. It didn't feel terribly, terribly heavy I, that I thought maybe I could get some more in. 
And uh, in fact, I went right back to the bar and uh, up. I lifted it up again, and bang! There she went overhead again. So I had now I had thirty-two in the in the books. And then again, very excitedly, I picked it up for the third time. And then uh, my third lift, I failed. So I kind of like chilled out, relaxed, catch your breath. You know, walk it off for a second. You know, you're not going to be able to lift them in that in that quick progression. And uh, then what I did, I actually lifted 33, 34, and 35. And then with five seconds left, I grabbed for the bar, picked it up, and threw it over my head. And I got 36 uh, reps in, in total. So six and six reps in at 135 pounds. And uh, by this point, the uh, the gym, they had known that this was something that I was working on and that this was my my PR. And I was actually now repping my my PR weight. So that, suddenly my, my, my PR was my working weight. And there was lots of cheers and uh, lots of celebration. And it was a wonderful, wonderful afternoon. So big success, one of the more uh, significant successes for me in CrossFit uh, from an individual level. Certainly nothing... Um, in terms of uh, relative to where some of the other athletes are at our gym, but certainly from a, an individual perspective, it was uh, uh, a big day for me. So now uh, this week I have to prepare for an awful workout. This uh, I'm just going to very briefly go over it, and I'll go over how it went next week. But it's a it's an 18-minute workout, and this is pure CrossFit now. It's an 18-minute workout. Again, it's an AMRAP, so as many rounds as possible in 18 minutes of 15 box jumps at 24-inch height for males, 20 inches for females, 12 um, uh, push presses uh, at 115 pounds, and uh, you don't have to uh, put it back onto the ground. You just have to keep the weight at, uh, at the rack position, but you've got to get 115 pounds directly overhead for 12 reps, and then nine toes to bar. A toes to bar is where you hang, you're basically hanging off a chin-up bar, but you've got to swing your legs up such that they uh, touch the bar. So again, 15 box jumps at 24 inches, um, then a dozen push presses at 115 pounds. For women, it's 75 pounds, and nine toes to bar. And we did a test run of it yesterday, and it was absolutely awful. Uh, the That's a heavy weight for me, 115 pounds to do 12 lifts per round, is very taxing. So I'm going to have to, the, I have to go about it more, um, I think more, uh, strategically and not try to gas and not allow myself to get gassed out early. And I think technique and proper form will be crucial in this one, particularly if one hopes to kind of progress deeper into the, into the uh, 18 minute workout. Okay. So that is the CrossFit update. And, uh, again, I will let you know how this particular workout goes. This is the third of five and, uh, I'm hitting my goals in terms of the percentile and where I want to be uh, relative to the other competitors. So, so far, so good in that regard. Okay, let's take a break now. And when we get back, I'm going to discuss the perils, if you will, of active SETI.
So Active SETI. Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with Active SETI, uh, or also known as Messages to Extraterrestrial Intelligences, METI. Now, it is the attempt to send messages to intelligent aliens. And active SETI messages, these messages are usually in the form of radio signals. And uh, But one could consider, for example, things like the physical message uh, embedded in the Pioneer probes. Uh, they could Those plaques that could also be considered a kind of active SETI. Um, as I guess as inefficient as that might be. And the, the term METI, it was coined by a Russian scientist by the name of Alexander Zyaitsev, and uh, he wanted to make sure that there was a clear-cut distinction between active SETI and METI. And what he says is that the science known as SETI deals with searching for messages from aliens. METI science deals with the creation of messages to aliens. Thus, SETI and METI proponents have quite different perspectives. SETI scientists are in a position to address only the local question, does active SETI make sense? In other words, would it be reasonable for SETI success to transmit with the object of attracting ETI's attention? In contrast to active SETI, METI pursues not a local and lucrative impulse, but a more global and unselfish one, to overcome the great silence in the universe, bringing to our extraterrestrial neighbors the long-expected annunciation, you are not alone. So, this uh, this idea uh, has been received very poorly uh, by a, um, a subset of SETI thinkers and uh, scientists and other individuals. Um, some, um, I guess, my, to a certain degree, myself included. One of the more prominent uh, opponents, if you will, uh, is a fellow by the name of uh, Michael Michaud, and he's a member of the SETI Permanent Study Group. And uh, he came out, uh, actually, he, he comes out every regularly, uh, every so often, and uh, explains his uh, particular concern about this. Uh, he says that active SETI may be putting humans in serious jeopardy. And he says, quote, let's be clear about this. Active SETI is not scientific research. It is a deliberate attempt to provoke a response by an alien civilization whose capabilities, intentions, and distance are not known to us. That makes it a, pub, a policy issue, end quote. So proponents of active study, they advocate that humanity, that we should deliberately transmit messages to outer space, obviously in hopes that an ETI will intercept them and learn of our existence. These signals would be different than reg- regular radio transmissions in that they would be stronger, more focused, and contain actual messages for potential listeners. And to bolter, bolster his case, Michaud lists an impressive retinue of scientists who agree with him, including sociobiologist Jared Diamond, uh, there's Nobel Prize-winning biologist George Wald and astronomers Robert Jastrow and Zdenek Kopal. And even lesser-known scientists have entered into the fray. So if I can quote from uh, Michaud, he says, Biologist Marker Archer said that any creature we contact will also have had to claw its way up the evolutionary ladder and will be every bit as nasty as we are. It will likely be an extremely adaptable, extremely aggressive super-predator. Physicist George Baldwin predicted that any effort to communicate with extraterrestrials is fraught with grave danger, as they will show innate contempt for human beings. Robert Rood warned that the civilization that blurts out its existence on interstellar beacons at the first opportunity might be like some early hominid descending from the trees and calling, Here, kitty, to a saber-toothed tiger. And Michaud, uh, he even brings in physicist Freeman Dyson into the conversation, and uh, this uh, this is a man who has clearly thought and written extensively on the subject. And uh, according to Dyson, quote, 
Our business as scientists is to search the universe to find out what's there. What is there may conform to our moral sense, or it may not. It is just as unscientific to impute to remote intelligences wisdom and serenity as it is to impute them with irrational and murderous impulses. We must be prepared for either possibility and conduct our searches accordingly. And uh, end quote from uh, Dyson. And he also posed two alternatives. He says that intelligence may be a benign influence, creating isolated groups of philosopher kings far apart in the heavens, sharing at leisure their accumulated wisdom. Or intelligence may be a cancer of purposeless technological exploitation sweeping across the galaxy. End quote. So Michaud's recommendations for active SETI, uh, he says, do not transmit a signal more powerful than the Earth's radio, natural radio leakage, including radars, without international consultation. And by international consultation, Michaud means the United Nations. So he's obviously pretty serious. Um, if I could just uh, also pull one last quote from Michaud. He says, In modern times, the public, the representatives, and the media have increasingly demanded accountability when powerful technologies are used for controversial purposes, especially when those technologies are built and operated with the taxpayer's money. Given the fact that there may be risks involved, using radio telescopes to attract the attention of other technological civilizations is controversial. We owe our fellow citizens some respect for their opinions. More than a year ago, I proposed a standard that recognizes the fact that signals already can not be called back. Do not transmit a signal more powerful than the Earth's radio leakage, including radars, without international consultation. Canadian scientist Ivan Dutil, who has designed portions of two interstellar messages for transmission from the F-Petoria radar telescope, has endorsed a similar approach. If the advocates of active SETI are not comfortable with the United Nations, I suggest an alternative. Take an active SETI proposal to the International Astronomical, Astronomical Union and seek that organization's endorsement. If the IAU will not endorse active SETI, there will be even more doubt as to whether it is legitimate science. End quote from Michael Michaud. Now, he's hardly the only one, again, who has come out um, about this. Um, another very vocal uh, individual, thinker, scientist, uh, is David Brin, the science fiction writer David Brin. And uh, a number of years ago, I think back in 2006, he published an article entitled Shouting at the Cosmos, or How SETI Has Taken a Worrisome Turn into Dangerous Territory. Now, David Brin, he's he's not making any grand claims one way or the other in regards to what he thinks extraterrestrials are like or what kind of a threat that they may pose. It's simply basically that we are making an, uh, we're, we're, too, we're, we're unfortunately kind of making an argument from ignorance here that we don't know what awaits out there and that we really should not shout into the jungle and, and call attention to ourselves. Now, I want to just pull a little bit from his article, Shouting Out of the Cosmos, where he tackles some arguments and answers. So, for example, uh, one of the complaints he get is that Earth civilization is already glaringly visible in radio, so it's too late to stay silent, to which David Brin responds, quote, This widely held assumption was, in fact, decisively disproved years ago in a paper written by, do uh, by Dr. Seth Shostak of SETI himself. In fact, even military radars and television signals appear to dissipate below interstellar noise levels within just a few light years. Certainly they are far less visible by many orders of magnitude than a directed beam from any of Earth's large or even intermediate radio telescopes. Moreover, this reasoning is illogical since Medi's whole purpose is to draw attention to Earth by dramatically increasing our visibility over whatever baseline value it currently has. 
If it's already too late, then what are they aiming to achieve? End quote. And then there's even, uh, for example, arguments about free speech and voluntary and how voluntary moratoria wouldn't work, which he addresses. Um, another, another, another point is because of expanding access technology, millions will have means to broadcast their own active SETI messages within 20 years, to which Bryn says it's a very valid point. So why should we not start the discussion right away? And uh, another question or concern is that attracting attention by radio is inherently harmless. Anyone talking about a range of hypothetical dangers must be paranoid about lured invasions by space monsters. To which Bryn responded, seriously, those are the very words. But um, doesn't that sound just a little, well, dogmatic? Assuming that your opponents are motivated by insipid passion instead of valid reasons, well, can we have a forum to see if this assumption is true or maybe a little insulting and paranoid in its own right? So again, you can see that uh, you get some pretty heated discussions here. A lot of people throwing assumptions about what they think ETIs are or are not like. I think clearly uh, I'm going to err on the side perhaps here of David Brin and just say at this point that the precautionary principle might be the more prudent, uh, might be the more prudent um, avenue to take right now. And by the way, uh, just to go back a little bit, uh, there have been already many attempts already at active SETI. And, uh, if I, I'm actually, I'm actually looking at the Wikipedia page right now, and there's like, I would say maybe 20 different transmissions that we've sent out into the cosmos already, uh, to draw attention to ourselves. The first one was done way back in 1974, and, uh, it was sent to the Hercules constellation, and it was the Arecibo message. And that will uh, not arrive until about the year 27,000, if it ever gets there at all. But since then, the transmissions have been a bit more targeted at, at, little more, at destinations that are a bit more reasonably uh, placed. So, uh, for example, uh, the, um, the cosmic, there's what's called the cosmic call. And the cosmic call, by the way, these transmissions, again, they're a binary code. And they contain various bits of information. And uh, again, that, uh, that uh, an extraterrestrial civilization would know is not uh, natural and, and would be uh, definitely from an, from an intelligent uh, life. So back in 2000, or back in 1999, rather, we sent uh, one to the Cygnus constellation, which should get there in uh, November of 2069. And uh, since then, there have been a whole host of messages. There's the cos- so those were the cosmic call ones. There were the, the teenage message, which is uh, was this was done in Russia and uh, contains messages in both Russian and English for intelligences. And uh, those went out in uh, 2001. There was one, two, three, four, five, six blur- blasts that went out. And then the cosmic call two uh, went out in 2003, and there was one, two, three, four, five blasts that happened then. And then in 2008, uh, there was a cross the universe message. And then in 2008, again, a message from Earth. And uh, then the last ones to go out were in 2009. And uh, I believe the majority of these, if, if, except save for maybe one or two, was in fact conducted in uh, in uh, in Russia. Uh, uh, they were emitted. Um, they were emitted by the uh, uh, through the Fpatoria. Um, a radar station, and they were organized by uh, this fellow Alexander Zaitsev, who has become a bit of a pariah uh, for his unilateral uh, ac- actions here. That uh, how dare he? For example, the perspective is how dare he conduct these uh, uh, active SETI searches, or actually not even a search, act- and actually this proclamation of our of our presence without any 
you know, international consultation. Um, it's, it seems almost a very reckless thing to do. So since 2009, there have not been any transmissions. I think mostly because of the pressure that's been exerted on him and his group. And, uh, he actually has backed down a little bit, kind of saying that, uh, he, okay, he agrees that we should probably have some, some further discourse on this and set up some kind of, um, a standard, if you will, in terms of what is and what is not acceptable. And again, the greater concern here is not even necessarily about Zyaitsev, but what might happen in future should everybody have access to kinds of these kinds of technologies where they could, out of their own backyards, send messages up into the heavens. Now, another person who has uh, spoken up about this is the uh, cosmologist uh, David Grinspoon, who also has written books about the Fermi paradox and other uh, other issues. And, of course, including the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And he had an article in Seed back in 2009, I think, or 2007. Yeah, 2007, sorry. Entitled, Who Speaks for Earth? And uh, subtitled, After decades of searching, scientists have found no trace of extraterrestrial intelligence. Now, some of them hope to make contact by broadcasting messages to the stars. Are we prepared for an answer? And I would highly recommend that you uh, search this article out and give it a, a good read as it gives you an excellent background on the politics that are that's behind the scenes here. Uh, the kind of disagreements that happen, uh, even the inner politics of SETI. Like, for example, SETI uh, themselves have not really wanted to touch this. Uh, they don't go about it, but they don't want to really touch it for fear that it could actually bring, a, bring negative uh, publicity to them because no one wants to talk about SETI as a risk. And uh, the last thing they want is bad publicity because right now they're so dependent on the small amount of funding that they get. So it's that kind of uh, head-in-the-sand attitude, though, that uh, is, is causing there to be a lack of proper um, agreement or protocols on the matter. And if I could just uh, quote from David Grinspoon's article, uh, this is what he has to say. So, quote, When pressed, everyone involved in the recent controversy agrees that harmful contact scenarios cannot be completely ruled out. Active SETI critics like Billingham, Michaud, and Brin don't support a blanket ban on transmissions, and even Zyaitsev accepts that open and multinational discussion is needed before anyone pursues transmission programs more ambitious and powerful than his own. The major disagreement is actually over how soon we can have tools to become wildly available to those who would signal at whim. At present, the radio astronomy facilities potentially capable of producing major active SETI broadcasts are all controlled by national governments, or at least large-scale organizations responsible to boards and donors and sensitive to public opinion. However, seemingly inevitable trends are placing increasingly powerful technologies in the hands of small groups or eager individuals with their own agendas and no oversight. Today, on the entire planet, there are only a few mavericks like Zyaitsev who are able and willing to unilaterally represent humanity and effectively reveal our presence. In the future, there could be one in every neighborhood. So far, SETI has turned up no evidence of other intelligent creatures out there seeking conversation. All we know for certain is that our galaxy is not full of civilizations occupying nearly every sun-like star and sending strong radio signals directly to Earth. In the absence of data, the questions of extraterrestrial intelligence, morality, and behavior are more philosophy than science. But even if no one else is out there, and we can ultimately, and, and we are ultimately alone, the idea of communicating with truly alien cultures forces us to consider ourselves from an entirely new and perhaps timely perspective. Even if we never make contact, any attempt to act and speak as one planet is not as misguided an, an endeavor. 
Our impulsive industrial transformation of our home planet is starting to catch up to us, and the nations of the world are struggling with existential threats like anthropogenic climate change and weapons of mass destruction. Whether or not we develop a mechanism for anticipating, discussing, and acting on long-term planetary dangers such as these before they become catastrophes remains to be seen, but the unified global outlook required to face them would certainly be a welcome development. End quote from David Greenspoon. And on this matter, I will give Anders Sandberg the last word. Anders Sandberg, one of my favorite transhumanists and certainly a, um, uh, a very important ETI theorist in his own right. He chimed in on the active SETI debate back in 2010. And uh, he uh, kind of, of course, as always, brings in a very unique uh, perspective into the, uh, into the issue. So Sandberg admits that it's hard to assess the risk, but that we might not like the answers. So here's a quote from him. There are two aspects to extraterrestrial risks, the probability that the signals will be received by somebody and that we would, afterwards, wish the aliens did not receive them. Stephen Hawking argued that we should be cautious. To him, the probability of aliens was relatively high, but he also thought the probability of them being risky was high. This risk might not be a direct invasion threat, but simply dangerous cultural transmissions. In the past, some human societies have fared badly when in contact with more advanced societies. Even a radio signal might consist of an information hazard, for example, containing infectious ideas or software. The aliens do not even have to be deliberately malicious. Many humans would jump at the chance of converting non-believers to their favorite belief system, thinking they'd do them a great service. While optimists about SETI tend to think communications would be benign, it is hard to assign a probability to it. The only thing we can say is that we have not seen any alien communications or even signs of them, which suggests that aliens either do not exist, we are not receiving anything from them, example, they are too far away, or we are listening on the wrong wavelengths, or they are keeping quiet. From a species survival perspective, we should generally prefer the middle answer. Why? Well, if we are the only ones, it means that either intelligent life is exceedingly improbable and we are lucky, or that intelligent life is not so uncommon but something wipes it out before it starts to spam the universe. Bad news. If there are aliens and they keep quiet, then they must have a very good and consistent reason. This could again be something positive or neutral. For example, they are too alien to communicate. They all do not wish to interfere with us. Or something bad. Example, civilizations that remain ob obvious fall to prey to... So, sorry, that civilizations that remain obvious, they fall prey to self-replicating weapons. Only the boring middle answer, that we simply cannot communicate for technical or distance reasons, implies safety. End quote from Anders Sandberg. So, um, I'm sure that Sandberg would agree that the boring answer is also very likely the most improbable answer, particularly given all the recent evidence indicating that the galaxy may be teeming with Earth-like planets. All right, so that is the discussion on active SETI. I will have a little bit more to say about it later on in this episode of the podcast, but because I want to get into uh, the discussion, still some more discussions about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and kind of um, talk a little bit about what uh, Anders Hanberg actually had to say about there about um, malicious communications. And uh, we're going to take a break, and when we get back, going to talk about how passive SETI, how listening for radio signals may prove to be a very dangerous activity as well.
Right, before we get into the next segment, I would like to play a clip from a uh, pretty uh, funny guy, John Hodgman. I'm sure many of you know John Hodgman. You would most certainly recognize him from the uh, I'm a PC and I'm a Mac commercial. He's the I'm a PC guy. And uh, he is a very uh, very funny guy, a very excellent comedian in his own right. And uh, he, he did a TED Talk a number of years ago in which he discussed aliens and love. Where are they? And uh, here's a very quick clip from John, and I'm, I'm sure you will enjoy this. You all know this story. In the summer of 1950, Enrico Fermi, the Italian-American physicist and atomic pile builder, went to lunch at Los Alamos National Laboratory and joined some colleagues there and asked them a question, where is everybody? This confused his colleagues, obviously, because they were sitting right there with him. And then he had to clarify that he wasn't talking about them. He was talking about the space aliens. You see, this was only a few years after the supposed flying saucer crash at Roswell, New Mexico. And even though that turned out to be nothing, nothing at all, <laughs> merely a downed weather balloon piloted by small hairless men <laughs> with slits for mouths, Still, America had gone saucer-mad, even famous scientists who were eating lunch. Fermi's reasoning, if I may paraphrase badly, is that the universe is so vast that it stands to reason there should be other intelligent life out there, and the universe is so old that unless we were the very first civilization ever to evolve, uh, we should have some evidence of their existence by now. And yet, to the best of our knowledge, we are alone. Where is everybody? asked Fermi, and his colleagues had no answer. Fermi then went on with the same blunt logic to disprove fairies, Sasquatch, God, the possibility of love, and thereafter, as you know, Enrico Fermi ate alone. <laughs> now, I am not a scientist. I have never built an atomic pile. Although I might argue that technically every pile is atomic. <laughs> However, with respect, I might point out two possibilities that Enrico Fermi perhaps did not consider. One is that the aliens might be very far away. Perhaps, I dare say, even on other planets. <laughs> the other possibility is perhaps Enrico Fermi himself was an alien. Think about it. Isn't it a little convenient that in the midst of the World War, out of nowhere, suddenly an Italian scientist showed up with an amazing new technology 
that would transform everything in the world and darken our history of the human species forever after. And isn't it a little strange that he required no payment for this? <laughs> that, that he asked for only one thing, a gift of two healthy sperm whales? That's, that's not true, but it is strange. And if Enrico Fermi was indeed a space alien, wouldn't he be the first who had tried to convince his fellow scientists that the space aliens are not already here? For it is given in certain UFOlogy or ufology circles that the aliens are already here and have been for millennia, that they have walked among us in disguise, observing us, guiding our evolution from ape to man, if you believe in that sort of thing. <laughs> and occasionally kidnapping us in their flying saucers and taking us away to have sex with us in pyramids. <laughs> it's a difficult theory to discount. I think you'll agree. I love that so much. That is pure awesome. I mean, how many guys can uh, take a topic like the Fermi Paradox and even discuss uh, um, you know, a, 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 a nuclear physicist like Enrico Fermi and uh, you know, bring, uh, bring some comedy into it and uh, make a light of it? It's, uh, I think it's a great, a great skill. I wish there was more geek humor out there. And uh, if anyone knows any other kind of great clips like that, uh, please send them my way. And I'll be sure to share it with the larger Sentient Developments community. Okay. So, active SETI, uh, we already discussed that, but what about just simply the act of listening to signals? Is that even potentially dangerous as well? Well, uh, yes, actually. And uh, there's a number of thinkers that uh, are concerned about this, including a Russian, uh, funny, the guy, it seems Russian uh, cosmologists and Russian ETI experts seem to be a uh, um, big part of this conversation, which is fair enough. It's, it's funny, it's easy to forget that, uh, that the Russian scientists were at one point, uh, obviously, and, you know, uh, their, their space program was amongst uh, the, the world leaders. I mean, they were, in fact, the first country to go into space. And uh, this, I think, the legacy of the Soviet era is that they still have a very solid base of thinkers there, particularly when it comes to space exploration and even thinking about uh, ETIs. And one such fellow, uh, his name is uh, Alexei Turchin. And uh, he gave a talk uh, at Harvard when I was there a couple of years ago. He gave it virtually, though. He, he didn't actually physically attend the conference, but he submitted a, a YouTube video, which you can check out, and I'll provide you a link with it if you'd like, where he said that SETI is at risk of downloading a Trojan horse. So he worries that humanity may be tricked by an out-of-control script that is propagating throughout the galaxy. And that this script, it would, uh, it would use a pre-singularity civilization, much like, let's take ours, for example. It would use this civilization as its vector. It would fool, uh, the host with a lure of some kind. So, for example, immortality, access to the galactic internet, and so on. And they would unwillingly, uh, and unwittingly build a device that produces a malign extraterrestrial artificial intelligence. And then this malign AI would then take over all of the resources of the planet so that it can rebroadcast itself into the cosmos in search of the next victim. Now, I actually am going to share with you this talk. It's about eight minutes long. Now, uh, you'll have to uh, bear with the recording a little bit in that Turchin has a very strong Russian accent, but it is mostly understandable. And uh, he goes into much more detail than I just did. So here it is. Uh, the name, um, The name of the talk is... Um, the SETI at risk uh, of downloading a Trojan horse. 
And again, the, the speaker is the Russian physicist Alexei Turchin. Ladies and gentlemen, the program of the search of extraterrestrial intelligence named SETI is a source of a certain extinction risk. The main idea is that even the passive SETI is much more dangerous activity than messaging to stars. One of the reasons of which is that we can download alien AI, that is, schematic circuit diagram of a computer plus a program for it, which will use the Earth to send its copies farther. The following is based on two premises. One, that is, extraterrestrial civilization do exist in the distances which allow radio communication but do not allow interstellar travel, which is from 1,000 to 1 million light years. Second is that artificial intelligence is possible as a self-evolving classic computer program. The search of extraterrestrial intelligence is developed by the exponential law and is powered by the Moore's law. For example, in the 60s only two stars were checked, while in our time several million stars will be checked. So the probability to find extraterrestrial signals is also growing exponentially. In fact, the idea of city attack is not new. The main plot of the novel A for Andromeda by Fred Hoyle describes the process of downloading schemes of a computer through SETI. This computer has the artificial intelligence and try to take over the world. Hans Morovic and his mind children is writing about a caveat for SETI. And according to Moravik, the city attack has a virus-like behavior, it concurred planets, and is spreading like infection through the galaxy. The first scientific article about the city attack was written by Richard Kerrigan. According to Kerrigan, the city attack message can contain something like a trick that could seduce the human race to create an alien computer. Stephen Hawking also has expressed concerns about contacts with aliens. Kerrigan showed that with the current technologies it is possible to send gigabytes of information in the interstellar distances. The size of human genome is less than one gigabyte and the human conscious memory is about two and a half gigabytes. So the seed AI could have the same size and could be sent on the interstellar distances. In the article, artificial intelligence is a positive and negative factor in global risk. Eliza Yudkovsky showed that the seed artificial intelligence can evolve extremely quickly. Second, that it could easily outsmart the human race and take over the world. That, that the risk of the artificial intelligence is tremendously underestimated. Fourth, it is impossible to put such artificial intelligence in the black box. Fifth, it is impossible to recognize the dangerous intentions of such artificial intelligence in advance. Now I tell you one possible scenario of the city attack. Extraterrestrials create a kind of a beacon in space, something like pulsing star. 
We can find the beacon and find information sending radio station close to this lighthouse. And we know that information consists of zeros and ones. And zeros and ones, as we know, are often used to send images. Images allow sending messages and schemes. This is our receiver message from Puerto Rico. It contains main information about the Earth's DNA and the human race. This is the Pioneer spacecraft message. And this is the Voyager message teaching the principle of mathematics. It is very possible that the Earth is not unique in its mathematics and language, that is Copernican mediocrity principle, so at least some civilizations can use the same logic. This means that understanding of extraterrestrial wire pictures is relatively easy, especially if they want to be understood and have trade on many other civilizations. The text of the message will probably contain some kind of a trick. If you make our device, we promise you, galactic internet, immortality, power over enemies. So the alien message would have three parts, the trick, the theme of a simple computer and the program for it. Extraterrestrial can send to us a scheme of a simple computer. The scheme of a simple computer can be easily represented for a simple drawing. For example, this is tuning machine made from Lego, and this is principal electric scheme of a simple and not logical element, and this is scheme of a spectrum computer. The download of alien AI can take several steps. After alien AI is started, it can somehow take over the world, maybe by creating its own nanotechnological instruments. Then the alien AI creates a new lighthouse with many transmitters and starts to set itself to the universe. It can use all the possible physical material of the solar system to build larger transmitters. So what is the probability that the city attack can lead to the human extinction? It's quite possible that the most of the city signals would be some kind of the city attack because the infected civilizations will spend all their resources on sending messages, something like spam. But what is the reason for any civilization to start such an attack? First, one is enough. One civilization can infect millions of civilizations and start a chain reaction. Second, it is a way to take power over galaxy. By why the humanity would create and start alien AI? Because many radio telescopes already do exist. The signals can be downloaded multiple times. It is possible that someone will be seduced by the trick and start the alien AI. If there are billions of civilizations in the universe, there will be natural selection for those messages which are spreading more quickly and create the strongest signal. So, most likely, we find such a message that will be a most effective, intelligent and aggressive one. So, the alien AI must use all the possible resources of the solar system and exterminate any risks to him. This means that alien AI should destroy humanity because people could resist the situation and because it should use all the physical material of the Earth to create the largest 
possible radio transmitter. My estimation of the probability of such a catastrophe is rather high and mostly depends on the probability of existence of extraterrestrials. I suggest considering several necessary actions to raise awareness about the problem, to change the guidelines for the SETI research, to consider the prohibition of the SETI before we get our own AI. Thank you for your attention. It's interesting to note that this concept is similar to Carl Sagan's interstellar transportation machine in contact, except that this one would obviously, this one's trying to uh, destroy uh, our civilization uh, rather than uh, see it move forward. And it's also worth noting that this, this, this schema that Turchin puts uh, together, it may be a mutation of some sort where no civilization was actually responsible for designing the damn thing. It's just a successful replicative schema that's following Darwinian principles. So it's very much just a, it is like a, not unlike a biological virus. So moving forward, Turchin suggests that we raise awareness of the potential problem, change the guidelines for SETI research, and consider the prohibition of SETI before we get our own AI, which is a pretty radical uh, proposition to put forward. And uh, his idea sounds maybe ludicrous, but it's one of those things that causes a you know, it's that, cause it might elicit a rather nervous laugh. And I think that Turchin's idea needs to be discussed as there may be some merit to it, and we certainly need to be careful. And I would like to actually talk a little bit about, uh, about this, uh, as it, as it was portrayed in science fiction and it was, as it was portrayed in, in Carl Sagan's contact. And in the film, you'll remember that, uh, extraterrestrial contact is made with the ETIs transmitting the blueprints to a massive engineering project supposedly for us to build. Now, after studying the schematics, it's determined that it's an outline for some sort of transportation device for a lone passenger. But the exact means of transportation is unknown, as is much of the science behind this radically advanced technology. So in the story, in the movie, there's some date debate uh, about the safety of embarking upon such a project. And there's worries about it being a possible Trojan horse or a doomsday device. But ultimately, the fears are set aside and the device is built at the cost of a quarter of a trillion dollars. Of course, the machine's a big success, and our, and our heroine, played by Jodie Foster, she gets to go on the thrill ride of a lifetime. But that's obviously that makes for great science fiction, and uh, even at the same time, uh, uh, however, Carl Sagan, I, I, he uh, tried to put together kind of a as much of a, a, a hard piece, if you will, in terms of hard science fiction, in terms of how uh, contact could actually unfold and unravel and how we would probably want to respond to such a thing. And on that, I would very much disagree with the approach that was taken. I think that the decision to construct the device was in fact the wrong one and that instead the precautionary principle should have been invoked big time. Now, in general, I'm not a, such a huge fan of the precautionary principle, but in this case, it most certainly would have been warranted. Now, without knowing the nature of the transmitting ETs themselves, or even if, they, if this came from a conscious entity of some sort, there's no way we could have predicted ET's true intentions. It very well could have been a Trojan horse, uh, something very akin to what Turchin uh, was speaking about. The device could have been deliberately designed to look like a transportation device to fool us into building it. So this is part of, the again, the vector uh, part of this, the replicative strategy that Turchin talked about is that there's a ruse here of some sort of trick, only to, only to have it turn out to be something far more nefarious instead, like a doomsday device, or as Turchin was suggesting, something that's basically self, self-replicative, so that basically just created an artificial intelligence, uses us, uh, us to create a, an AI that essentially transmits itself out yet again and again and again. Now, why would ETs do such a thing? 
Well, the transmission, it's, this, this could be, again, a script out of control, that it's viral. And you can imagine a malevolent or paranoid civilization or a group of individuals determined to wipe out intelligent life across the galaxy. Uh, that this is a kind of, as Turchin suggested, a, a form of control. That as long as you're the first one to do this, you can remain safe and immunize yourself against this. And uh, you could set up a bunch of beacons across the galaxy that transmit this kind of evil code. And as precedent, as precedent that intelligences are capable of such a thing, people write viruses here on, on our planet for no good reason. Perhaps signals such as these are the ultimate manifestation of computer viruses, one information system finding mimetic compatibility with another and infecting it. The trouble is with such a scenario, however, is that such a code wouldn't replicate and retransmit, but if the source transmitter remains intact, it would be the typhoid Mary of civilizations. So rather than build the device on sheer blind faith alone, um, I would have suggested that the extraterrestrial schematics be studied, for example, or an attempt to reverse engineered and modeled to the point where we felt comfortable enough to predict as much of its effects as possible. And then we could build it. But even then, I think uh, we probably never could understand alien technology. Certainly anything uh, beyond our capacities would probably not be a good idea. All right. Now, that is the end of that particular uh, section. But before we go to break, and before we truly conclude the, the discussion of extraterrestrial intelligence, I want to go over five reasons why um, so many people are wrong about alien threats, and in particular, Stephen Hawking. And this goes back, uh, this, why I say Stephen Hawking is that this goes back a, a couple of years when uh, he argued that humanity uh, maybe putting itself in mortal peril by actively trying to contact aliens. And uh, he was very direct in, in his critique of active SETI. And what he said was that, if quote, if aliens visit us, the outcome would be much as when Columbus landed in America, which didn't turn out well for the Native Americans. So he's basically arguing that ETIs, once alerted to our presence, may swoop in and indiscriminately, indiscriminately take what they need from us and possibly destroy us in the process. David Brin, he paraphrased Hawking's argument by saying, quote, All living creatures inherently use resources to the limits of their ability, inventing new aims, desires, and ambitions to suit their next level of power. If they wanted to use our solar system for some super project, our complaints would be like an ant colony protesting the laying of a parking lot. End quote from David Brin. And it's best to keep quiet, goes the thinking, lest we attract any undesirable alien elements. And a number of other thinkers, they chimed in uh, when this debate uh, emerged uh, a couple of years ago. Writers like Robin Hansen, Julian Savulescu, and Paul Davies, along with, of course, David Brennan and many more. And what amazed me, though, as I read each and every one of their arguments, and most of them in support of um, uh, Hawking, is that almost everyone is getting it wrong. Uh, I have some rather particular views as it comes to... Uh, our, you know, what I've considered to be our failing search for extraterrestrial intelligences, and even my sense of the of the future and where we might end up as a uh, as an advanced species. So I came up with a list of five different things that uh, I felt were wrong with their conclusions, and uh, some of the perhaps areas in which we need to reconsider our thinking on the matter. So um, five reasons why Stephen Hawking and everyone else is wrong about alien threats. Number one, if aliens wanted to find us they would have done so already. So first, the Fermi Paradox reminds us that the galaxy could have been colonized many times over by now. We are late for the show. Second, let's stop for a moment and think about the nature of a civilization that has the capacity for interstellar travel. We're talking about a sieve that has survived a technological singularity event, 
It's in the possession, very likely, of molecular assembling nanotechnology and radically advanced artificial intelligence and has made the transition from biological to digital substrate. Make it clear here that a spacefaring civilization will not be biological. And I don't care for ring world scenarios where we have these generation ships um, flying from star system to star system. So now that I've painted this picture for you, and under the assumption that ETIs are proactively searching for potentially dangerous or exploitable civilizations, what could possibly prevent them from finding us? Assuming this is important to them, their communications and telescopic technologies would be likely off the scale. Bracewell probes would likely pepper the galaxy, and Hubble-Bubble limitations aside, they could use various spectroscopic and other techniques to identify not just life-bearing planets, but civilization-bearing planets. So, for example, looking for specific post-industrial chemical compounds in the atmosphere, such as elevated levels of carbon dioxide and so on. And we're actually, we are almost uh, there ourselves. In fact, we might even be there ourselves. We can actually detect uh, the atmospheric components of uh, exoplanets. Moreover, whether we like it or not, we've been shouting out into the cosmos for quite some time now. Ever since the first radio signal beamed its way out into space, we've made our presence known to anyone caring to listen to us within a radius of about 80 light years. So the cat's out of the bag, folks. Although in this particular point, I do realize that there's some um, debate as to whether or not our radio signals were ever strong enough to get out that far. So I do acknowledge that. We may not be as as loud as I think we are. So that was reason number one. Reason number two, if ETIs wanted to destroy us, they would have done so by now. Now, I've, I've this is something I've spoke to extensively, and I even wrote, dedicated an article to this entitled, uh, If Aliens Wanted To, They Would Have Destroyed Us By Now. But I'll give you one example. Keeping the extreme age of the galaxy in mind, and knowing that every single solar system in the galaxy could have been seeded many times over by now with various types of self-replicating probes, it's not unreasonable to suggest that a civilization hell-bent on looking out for threats could have planted a dormant berserker probe in our solar system. Such a probe would be waiting to be activated by, say, a radio signal, an indication that a potentially dangerous pre-singularity intelligence now resides in the neighborhood. In other words, we should have been destroyed the moment our first radio signals made its way through the solar system. But because we are still here, and because we're on the verge of, a, of graduating to a post-singularity status, it's highly unlikely that we'll be destroyed by an ETI. Either that or they're waiting to see what kind of post-singularity type emerges from human civilization. They may still choose to snuff us out the moment they're not satisfied with whatever it is that they see. Regardless, our communication efforts, whether active or passive, will have no bearing on the outcome. Now, point number three, if aliens wanted our solar system's resources, they would have taken them by now. Again, given that we're talking about a space-faring post-singularity intelligence, it's ridiculous to suggest that we have anything of material value for a civilization of this type. The only thing I can think of is the entire planet itself, which they could convert into comp computronium, also known as a, a Jupiter brain. Uh, but even that's a stretch. We're just a speck of dust. If anything, they may want to tap into our sun's energy output. So, for example, they could build a Dyson sphere or matryoshka brain or convert our gas giants into massive supercomputers. Now, it's important to keep in mind that the only resource a post-singularity machine intelligence could possibly want is one that furthers their ability to perform megascales level of computation. And it's worth noting that, once again, our efforts to make contact will have no influence on this scenario. If they want our stuff, they'll just take it. Point number four. Human civilization has absolutely nothing to offer a post-singularity intelligence. But what if it's not our resources they want? Perhaps we have something of a technological or cultural nature that's appealing. 
Well, what could that possibly be? Hmm, think, think, think. What would a civilization that can crunch 10 to the power 42 operations per second want from us wily and resourceful humans? Hmm, iPads maybe? Yeah, iPads, that must be it. Or possibly yogurt. And lastly, point number five, extrapolating biological tendencies to a post-singularity intelligence is asinine. Now, there's another argument out there that suggests we can't know the behavior or motivational tendencies of ETIs. Therefore, we need to tread very carefully. Fair enough. But where this argument goes too far is in the suggestion that advanced civs act in accordance to their biological ancestry. For example, humans may actually be nice relative to other civs who, instead of evolving from benign apes, evolved from nasty insects or predatory lizards. I am personally astounded by this argument. Developmental trends in human history have not been driven by atavistic psychological tendencies, but rather by such things as technological advancements, resource scarcity, resource scarcity, economics, politics, and many other factors. Yes, human psychology has undeniably played a role in our transition from jungle dweller to civilizational species, traits like our inquisitiveness and empathy, but those are low-level factors that ultimately take a backseat to the emergent realities of technological, demographic, economic, and politico-societal development. Moreover, advanced civilizations likely converge around specific survivalist fitness peaks that result in homogenization of intelligence. There won't be a lot of wiggle room in the space of all possible survivable post-singularity modes. In other words, an insectoid post-singularity SAI or singleton will almost certainly be identical to one derived from ape lineage. Therefore, attempts to extrapolate human nature or ETI nature to the mind of its respective post-singularity descendant is equally problematic. The psychology or goal structure of an SAI will be of a profoundly different quality than that of a biological mind that has evolved through the processes of natural selection. While we may wish to impose certain values and tendencies onto an SAI, there's no guarantee that a mind of that capacity will retain even a semblance of its biological nature. So there you have it. Those are the five points. So, when it comes to active SETI, passive SETIs, my own opinion, really, if you really want me to get down to it, again, I'm not saying we should do active SETI. not saying that. But I'm saying if we were to do it, it doesn't really matter. Because in all likelihood, no one's listening, and no one cares. And if I'm wrong, it still doesn't matter, because ETAs would find us and treat us according to their will. That is my two cents on the whole discussion. I'm going to close the chapter now on that for this episode. Let's take a break, though, and when we get back, I'm going to just quickly review an interview that was done by Nick Bostrom in The Atlantic, and I also want to talk about the Create the Future myth.
sure many of you know Dr. Nick Bostrom, the polymath philosopher, neuroscientist, transhumanist thinker out at Oxford University. Brilliant, brilliant guy. I have had the pleasure of knowing him and uh, working with him over the last 10 years or so. And uh, just a very quick personal story. He is that that veritable uh, um, absent-minded professor type and uh, an individual who I'm sure gets so carried away in his own thoughts. I mean, the guy is quite, quite brilliant. He, uh, we, when I was at Stanford a number of years back, he and I were walking from our hotel to the uh, facility where we were giving uh, our presentations. And, uh, he was, I can't remember what we were talking about. And, uh, he, but again, that he's that absent-minded professor type. He was so in, in, engaged in, in what he was, in what he was saying in our conversation, what he was thinking. He, uh, he actually walked into the middle of traffic without even realizing it. And I kind of had to, I grabbed him. I said, Nick, you got to pull him back. And, uh, I can imagine the, you know, uh, day to day, you know, what, what, what it must be like to be that, uh, that kind of carefree and, uh, you know, finding yourself always, um, you know, in deep thought such that you walk out into the middle of the street. So that's my Nick Bostrom story. I'm not saying I saved his life. Um, but saying that, um, that, uh, that was definitely an interesting uh, scene to have seen, uh, Nick walking into the street that way. Okay, he was interviewed by The Atlantic. The interviewer's name is Ross Anderson. And one of the things that Nick Bostrom is known for is his discussions of existential risks. And existential risk, of course, being something in our future that could result in human extinction, the the elimination of humanity as we know it. And it could be such things as, uh, you know, getting snuffed out because of a cataclysmic, uh, a problem, uh, let's say nuclear war, or it could be even getting struck by an asteroid. So it's not necessarily of our own doing. It's just something that could result in human extinction. So in the interview, he was asked, what technology or potential technology worries you the most? To which Bostrom responded, quote, well, I can mention a few. In the near term, I think various developments in biotechnology and synthetic biology are quite disconcerting. We are gaining the ability to create designer pathogens, and there are these blueprints of various disease organisms that are in the public domain. You can download the gene sequence for smallpox or the 1918 flu virus from the internet. So far, the ordinary person will only have a digital representation of it on their computer screen. But we're also developing better and better DNA synthesis machines, which are machines that can take one of these digital blueprints as an input and then print out the actual RNA string or DNA string. Soon they will become powerful enough that they can actually print out these kinds of viruses. So already you have a kind of predictable risk. And then once you can start modifying these organisms in certain kinds of ways, there is a whole additional frontier of danger that you can foresee. In the longer run, I think artificial intelligence, once it gains human and then superhuman capabilities, will present us with major risk area. There are also different kinds of population control that worry me, things like surveillance and psychological manipulation pharmaceuticals, end quote. Again, Bostrom is always not necessarily worried about that kind of cataclysmic finish to the human species, uh, but also, for example, the things that would result in the diminishment of our our development, uh, kind of like dystopic. Uh, end game, so where we we would end up in an undesirable phase. So that's what I think he was getting that there with with psychological manipulation and surveillance that we would be demeaned as individuals and as a civilization, such that it would basically qualify as a kind of existential risk. Uh, 
So the other que- another question that he was asked, in one of your papers on this topic, you know that experts have estimated our total existential risk for this century to be somewhere around 10 to 20%. I know I can't be alone in thinking that is high. What's driving that? To which Bostrom responded, quote, I think what's driving it is the sense that humans are developing these very potent capabilities. We are doing unprecedented things, and there is a risk that something could go wrong. Even with nuclear weapons, if you rewind the tape, you notice that it turned out that in order to make a nuclear weapon, you had to have these very raw materials like highly enriched uranium or plutonium, which are very difficult to get. But suppose that it turned out that there was some technological technique that allowed you to make a nuclear weapon by baking sand in a microwave oven or something like that. If it had turned out that way, then where would we be now? Presumably, once the discovery had been made, civilization would have been doomed. Each time we make one of these new discoveries, we are putting our hand into a big urn of balls and pulling up a new ball. So far, we've pulled up white balls and gray balls, but maybe next time we will pull out a black ball, a discovery that spells disaster. At the moment, we have no good way of putting the ball back into the urn if we don't like it. Once a discovery has been published, there is no way of unpublishing it. Even with nuclear weapons, there were close calls. According to some people, we came quite close to all-out nuclear war, and that was only in the first decades of having discovered the new technology. And again, it's a technology that only few large states had, and that requires a lot of resources to control. Individuals can't really have a nuclear arsenal. End quote. And one last quote from uh, Bostron here, as it pertains actually to uh, our future and even uh, the the future of extraterrestrial intelligence. He's asked, In considering the long-term development of humanity, Do you put much stock in specific schemes like the Kardashev scale, which plots the advancement of civilization according to its ability to harness energy, specifically the energy of its planet, its star, and then finally the galaxy? Might there be more to human flourishing than just increasing mastery of energy sources? To which Nick responded, quote, Certainly there would be more to human flourishing. In fact, I don't even think that particular scale is very useful. There is a discontinuity between the stage where we are now where we are harnessing a lot of the energy resources of our home planet, and a stage where we can harness the energy of some increasing faction, fraction of the universe like a galaxy. There's no particular reason to think that we might reach some intermediate stage where we would harness the energy of one star, like our sun. By the time we can do that, I suspect we'll be able to engage in large-scale space colonization to spread into the galaxy and then beyond. So I don't think harnessing the single star is a relevant step on the ladder. If I wanted some sort of scheme that laid out the stages of civilization, the period before machine superintelligence and the period after supermachine intelligence would be a more relevant dichotomy. When you look at what's valuable or interesting in examining these stages, it's going to be what is done with these future resources and technologies, as opposed to their structure. It's possible that the long-term future of humanity, if things go well, would from the outside look very simple. You might have Earth at the center, and then you might have a growing sphere of technological infrastructure that expands in all directions at some significant fraction of the speed of light, occupying larger and larger volumes of the universe, first in our galaxy, and then beyond as far as is physically possible. And then all that ever happens is just this continued increase in the spherical volume of matter colonized by human descendants, a growing bubble of infrastructure. Everything would then depend on what was happening inside this infrastructure, what kinds of lives people were being led there, what kinds of experiences people were having. You couldn't infer that from large-scale structure, so you'd have to sort of zoom in and see what kind of information processing occurred within this infrastructure. It's hard to know what it might look like, because our human experiences might be just like a small little crumb of what's possible. 
If you think of all the different modes of being, different kinds of feeling and experiencing, different ways of thinking and relating, it might be that human nature constrains us to a very narrow little corner of the space of possible modes of being. If we think of the space of possible modes of being as a large cathedral, then humanity in its current stage might be like a little cowering infant sitting in the corner of that cathedral having only the most limited sense of what's possible. And quote from Nick Bostrom, that is only a small portion of the interview. I do recommend that you read the whole thing. But as you can see, Nick, a very brilliant mind and uh, certainly one of my the most important mentors for me and the development of my conception of both things like machine intelligence and uh, the search for extraterrestrial uh, civilizations and so on. So um, owe a lot to Nick and uh, good to see that he's still getting out there and uh, participating in the discussion. And I'm sure many of you are also familiar with Nick through his simulation argument as well as he's the one who put that out there. All right, I'm going to close the show in a couple of minutes, but, but before I do, one last, I guess, segment here. And I, put, I decided to, to discuss this today because um, what I'm going about to talk about kind of um, reminds me a little bit of uh, what Nick was just saying now about our possible futures. And uh, I also find, you know, you know, listening to some TED Talks and even listening to some um, very... Uh, Outspoken futurists and techno progressives, and um, there's a there there can be a lot of optimism about our ability to shape and craft the future in ways that we see fit. And I don't always, my I personally don't always see it that way. Like a, a popular notion amongst futurists and techno progressives, transhumanists, is this this suggestion that we can proactively engineer the kind of future that we want to live in. And I I myself I will admit I've been seduced by this idea back during the Better Humans days. Uh, our mission, uh, the journal's mission, was to connect people to the future so that they can create it. And uh, given the seemingly dystopic and near-apocalyptic trajectory that humanity appears to be heading in, this was and still is a powerfully intuitive and empowering concept. But the trouble with this create-the-future idea is that it's it's mostly delusional. Now, I don't deny that we should collectively work to build a desirable future that is inherently livable and where our values have been preserved. My progressivism in this regard is unshatterable, but what I am concerned about, though, is the degree to which we can actually control our destiny. While I am not an outright technological determinist, I'm pretty darn close. As our technologies increase in power and in sophistication, and as an unanticipated convergent effects emerge from their presence, we will increasingly find ourselves having to deal with the consequences. It is in addressing these technological side effects that our desired trajectories will be rerouted by pragmatism and survivalism. In other words, adaptationism supersede idealized notions of where we can and should develop as an advanced species. Okay, what do I mean by that? Well, for example, consider the remedial ecology and geoengineering concepts. Now, we've not voluntarily chosen to explore these particular areas of inquiry. These are technologies of adaptationist necessity. Now, because we've buggered up the planet and because we may have no other choice, humanity finds itself compelled to pour its time and resources into areas in which we wouldn't have otherwise cared about. Breaking down toxic wastes and removing carbon from the atmosphere was not anything anybody would have desired a century ago. Our present is not the future that our ancestors could have anticipated or created. Technological adaptationism also extends to ramifications in the social and political arenas. The entire back half of the 20th century was marred by the Cold War. 
a bipolar geopolitical arrangement that emerged due to the presence of ideologically disparate hegemons in the possession of apocalyptic weapons. We have no reason to believe that a similar arrangement couldn't happen again, especially when considering the potential for ongoing nuclear proliferation and the development of novel apocalyptic-scale technologies such as nanoweapons and ro robotic armadas. Even worse, given the possibility that a small team or even a single individual may eventually be capable of hijacking the entire planet, our civil liberties as we know them may cease to exist altogether in favor of mass surveillance and quasi-totalitarian police states. Again, this isn't anything that any progressive futurist wants, but these are the unintended consequences of technological advancement. We are slaves to technological adaptationism. To do otherwise would be to risk our very own existence, and in order to avoid our extinction, or something similarly catastrophic, we may be compelled to alter our social structures, values, technological areas of inquiry, and even ourselves in order to adapt. As to whether or not such a future is desirable by today's standards is an open question. And on that note, I will conclude this week's episode of the Sentient Developments Podcast. Thank you so much for, for tuning in. It was a long one today, but filled with information and hopefully some insight that uh, you found uh, both interesting and valuable. Please join me again in about a week's time or so. We'll do it all over again. Not sure what we'll talk about uh, at that time, but uh, again, we'll keep it on the themes of futurism and uh, transhumanism, science, technology, bioethics in particular. These are a few of my favorite things. So again, everyone, thank you for listening. Have yourselves a wonderful and productive week. Catch you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Sentient Developments. Goodbye.